Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Phaedra Longhurst. Phaedra is a body image and appearance related researcher at the British Association for Counsellors and Psychotherapists and is completing an MSc in Psychology at the University of Exeter. Phaedra's dissertation title is looking at nature and positive body image and Phaedra joins us today to discuss her personal experience and academic knowledge of interoception, body image and eating disorders in individuals with autism. Hello Phaedra. Hello, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? I'm good, apart from I feel like I didn't catch a breath in my introduction. I didn't quite realise how long it was, so by the end I was like, oh, there we go. (laughs) There's just so much to say. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. Um, I think we've got some topics that we haven't really touched on, but I think a lot of people can relate to. So kind of getting your personal experience, but also the academic side of things, I think will be awesome. So I wanted to start, I mentioned interoception in the introduction, and I wanted to start if you could explain to the listeners what that is. It's such a, it's quite an intense construct and there's lots of different aspects to what interception is. So there's lots of almost different facets to it. But to put it quite simply is the research tends to refer to it as either inter or interchangeably. So either interoceptive awareness and interoceptive sensibility or sensitivity And the research tends to mostly look at um, interoceptive awareness because that mostly looks at how one subjectively evaluates their internal bodily sensations. So how they perceive and experience things like uh, hunger, heartbeat as well. Heartbeat is quite a big one as to how uh, they tend to measure it amongst people. And that's often sort of measured using self-completed questionnaires. Whereas with interoceptive uh, sensitivity, it's a lot more complex of a, it's almost like quite procedural. So how, um, so they'll actually measure objectively your, your heartbeat and then compare it to how you again have subjectively experienced that. But what I find quite interesting with interoceptive awareness and the research connecting it to body image and eating disorders is how, um, so it's all, again, you can then further kind of separate it into how one just experiences it. Where, so I guess you can ask someone their awareness of the internal bodily sensations so they can say oh my heartbeat is quite fast after say doing like some so a researcher might ask them to do some star jumps or something to kind of exert or increase their heartbeat and just asking them 
what is your awareness of it? Can you tell us what it is that you're experiencing? But it's also, you can then further ask them how it is that they're responding to them. So how they're evaluating it or appraising that kind of bodily cue. So I think that's quite interesting in that a lot of the research just simply measures their response to it. So for an autistic individual, you can ask them, so what is it that you're experiencing? They might say, oh, I don't really feel anything. Mm-hmm. But what is also quite interesting is asking them, okay, so if you're feeling it, how are you kind of, um, how does it, what sort of emotional response does that elicit? Because it can either be quite an aversive experience, so not a very comfortable one, which I actually think is, um if I'm I don't want to speak for the entire autistic community but I think um it's quite a uncomfortable sort of experience for a lot of autistic people so I think um a lot of the research doesn't really seem to tap into that quite enough to my liking that was a massive long answer I'm sorry (laughs) podcast you're meant to be chatting I love it um so how how does interoception link you've really mentioned that nicely about autism maybe the lack of understanding about it but how how does it link to eating disorders and body image is it that kind of the those sensations of hunger or the sensation of like being in your body is different so I guess my because I would say I'm more of a body image researcher my understanding the standing of it is a lot more linked to uh, body image. Mm-hmm. So I'll start off there in that. Um, so I think it's important to say that interoception, because it's quite a large construct, um, elixithymia is also somewhat linked to that. So elixithymia is um, how one is one's ability to basically verbalize their emotions. So both psychologically so I'm feeling sad Mm -hmm. but also how one communicates what it is that they're internally feeling and so those are quite linked as well so it's so say like you're you're experiencing anxiety and with that you have quite an increased heart rate someone might not be able to kind of pinpoint the fact that they are having an increased heart rate and associating that with their anxiety So they might be having a hard time just kind of connecting the two and therefore articulating the fact that of what it is that they're experiencing both emotionally and physically. So it's kind of like that inability to basically do that. Um, So I think that's really important to touch on because interoception and lithothymia are very interchangeable uh, or very much linked. Mm. And their connections with body image is... So I'm particularly interested in positive body image because I'm all into positive psychology. I like, I'm interested in how the outcome can be improved. So if we understand like a positive outcome, I just feel like it's a lot more constructive in helping that person kind of reach that outcome. Whereas if we are just aware, like, so with negative body image, it's, it's great that we kind of have gained an understanding as to sort of the mechanisms that has driven that kind of those poor outcomes. That's great. But then we're just stuck with the bad outcome. How mm-hmm. can we attain the good outcome? So I think it's really important for people to kind of be more aware of positive body image because 
I just think it just kind of drives us more into the, uh, into the right direction. So with interoception and positive body image, it's really interesting because we understand that a huge aspect of having a positive body image and what seems to promote that is intuitive eating. So we often hear in the eating disorder community of, oh, let's help this person kind of attain better intuitive eating. Mm. And that's great because it has very much been a huge kind of... Um, like a positive inter form of intervention and it's proven to be really kind of effective and, and does yield the outcomes that we want. However, to intuitively eat requires uh, accurate interoceptive awareness. So uh, for example, your ability to kind of, so intuitive eating can kind of be cut into or separated into two entities as you eat when you're hungry and you stop until you're satiated. It sounds very simple, but it's not. Um, so you're like, great, I'm hungry. And then the next part is, okay, what do I fancy eating? So you have this unconditional um, ex like acceptance of food. So you don't categorize foods as good or bad, which is gross anyway but you just allow yourself to eat whatever food you want. And so you think, I'm hungry, I fancy, I don't know, a bagel, because who, who doesn't love bagels? And you chomp on that bagel and you're like, cool, I'm full. And then you stop whether or not the bagel's all gone. If the bagel's all gone and you're still hungry, you carry on. And that's what they seem to kind of, I guess, how you can maybe exemplify intuitive eating. But like I said, that requires interoceptive awareness. And so that leaves a lot of, so interoceptive awareness has been demonstrably altered amongst, say, uh, individuals with anorexia nervosa and particularly amongst autistic individuals. But I think one important thing to note is how, yes, amongst autistic people that it, interoception is very much, diff, it differs amongst autistic people. So it's either very much perhaps not absent, but they're not very sensitive to it. So they're not really, they don't show much awareness of it. So for example, they are very susceptible to, injury because they don't really seem to experience pain mm. or someone like myself so to kind of just be um to disclose I'm autistic um so high function in autism and I am extremely sensitive and so, so much so that my tolerance to a lot of things is um not great so I don't like the sensation of being hungry, but I also very much don't like the sensation of being full. So where does that leave me in terms of intuitive eating? Because I don't consider myself able to intuitively eat, but not for inherently pathological reasons. Mm. But, and again, also I'll disclose that I am in recovery for anorexia nervosa. However, I feel like how I've gotten to that diagnosis is not the stereotypical journey that you typically that people always assume so I have these 
concerns about how my external appearance and things like that. And so with its link within t- between interoception and body images, yes, body images about how we perceive ourselves externally, but interoception ten- helps us tie it into the more internal aspects, which I think are equally important. So it is about how we feel inside, not just about how we feel on the outside. And I really think it, it has been shown that interoception can have like quite an effect on how you then externally evaluate yourself. So if you're not having an, a pleasant internal experience, that can then really have an effect on how you then perceive yourself externally. So um, it's then been tied with um, both interoception and alexithymia has been tied with body dysmorphic disorder. So people with lower inter uh, with lower or impaired alexithymia do it is associated with higher body dysmorphic symptoms so i think that i hope that's somewhat no i think uh, yeah (laughs) i think it's really interesting what you were saying because i think like you said the like internal feelings can often play such a big role on how you perceive yourself and I think that with hunger and fullness ties in so much as well because if you have eaten you know a a lot maybe a larger meal than normal or you're just feeling a bit more full than normal I think then you know talking from personal experience I then do think oh I feel you know I feel a bit bigger than I normally do my clothes feel a bit more uncomfortable and then you look in the mirror or I look in the mirror and I feel like I am bigger um when actually to you know the person next to me I look exactly the same but it's just that heightened heightened response I think also what you were saying about intuitive eating is is so interesting as well because I think you know personally I've been really trying to eat intuitively but I have body dysmorphia so I found it so difficult because I don't really understand that hunger and the fullness because I think of the the body dysmorphia and things like that so actually tying it all in together when you break it down into separate parts it seems like such an easy kind of thing like you said you know eat when you're hungry stop when you're full um and kind of but then when there's the other elements tied into that it's actually a very complex thing and I think you laying it all down is brilliant because it it can allow you to think about each thing individually, but not knowing about the interoception and the alexithymia and the effect on body image and intuitive eating, I think it does just feel like a mind scramble. Yeah, and I thought I'd add also, so I am speaking from personal experience, so please do not kind of use this as like, um, to generalize across the autistic community, but it has in research, what I found was a huge light bulb moment is I read in a paper recently from Breeder Tell. They wrote this amazing, also they kind of proposed a autism specific model for restrictive disordered eating. And they are a participant kind of identified that they used exercises for form of stimming so within the autistic community stimming is so it doesn't it's not just for uh neurodivergent people i think neurotypical people do it as well but they're just not um aware that they're doing it and it might not be serve such a a greater importance to them but stimming is kind of um 
So it's almost, it's so hard to describe and I hope I don't like make loads of autistic people out there roll their eyes. But for me, I get, I'll speak from my personal experience. Mm -hmm. It's like a sensory experience where either it involves things like not to entrench stereotypes, but for me, hand flapping, uh, clapping, uh, sometimes you can use um, toys or objects that are, uh, it kind of elicits like a nice soothing sensory experience for you. Okay. So I have a blanket, which is on my lap or on my face at all times, because I like the soft sensation of it. It just kind of helps regulate myself. Sometimes if you're experiencing like quite an intense emotion, uh, so like anxiety, or you could be happy as well. Like whenever something exciting or intense happens, I often then just start flapping my hands like I'm trying to fly away. But if I'm freaked out by something, I often clap uh, or tap my face, which I try to suppress for most of my childhood because it's still not the most socially acceptable thing to be doing. But I think uh, in the past year, I'm like, fuck it. I, it makes me feel better. Yeah. It helps me ground myself. So if I need to do it, I'm going to do it mm. because um, the other person's going to experience me a whole lot better at the end of it. So I just crack on now. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of um, autistic people have uh, with anorexia nervosa or, or with a restrictive eating diagnosis so you say like uh, maybe not ARFID but um, they describe exercise as a form of stimming and like I said it was a huge light bulb moment because uh, one of so the development of my eating disorder is quite complex and like for many other people there's lots of underlying issues or reasons as to why it kind of came about but with exercise, I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't. So I was able to improve my eating or my intake, but I just couldn't let go of the exercise aspects of it. And I couldn't really understand why. I, I couldn't really understand what, per, what purpose it was giving me other than maybe like that awful social reason of, oh, it makes me feel a lot more like I'm accomplishing something or it's a lot more socially um, favorable and all those crappy reasons. But I thought, no, there's just something else to it and I can't quite put my finger on it. And it is a huge form of stimming for me. I like that feeling of an increased heart rate. I like that feeling of exertion. Um, so I often do it first thing in the morning because it, I just find it so, it just draws me out of my head and I just very much like the physical sensation of it. Whereas I know so many people absolutely hate it. They don't like run, just walking up like a steep hill. They're like, oh, I hate the feeling of being out of breath. Whereas I want it all the time because I like that physical sensation. And I just thought, I don't understand why though. And yeah, it kind of made me think it, I feel like it is a huge form of stimming for me. Cause at the end of it, once my heart rate comes back down, I like experiencing that weird fluctuation in myself. 
which is unusual because I know that actually it's not that pleasant of an experience but at the same time yeah it kind of I guess there's a state of mindfulness for me so it really gets me out of my head and really in tune with what's going on in my body so that is a weird form of mindfulness for me and I find it incredibly self-grounding so and I think that's another thing that we tend to or that I've experienced within eating disorder treatment that they didn't quite try to they just couldn't figure that out when I tried to articulate that to them so I was like now I can't intuitively eat like you say for the exact same reasons as you say Hannah in that I just cannot trust myself because it's really distorted I know it's warped so um, I just can't really gauge as to when I'm really hungry or when I'm full and I think that's another thing to also kind of touch on is that um, like I said earlier, yes, it's all very well measuring about our response, but we also need to be measuring about how we perceive them. So research has found like, yes, in, uh, interoceptive awareness does pro is linked with positive body image. However, that is very much got to do with how that person feels confident in perceiving that. So we have mm. both articulated, we don't feel very confident in our ability to kind of detect that. And so that inherently automatically makes us think not that positive <laughs> surprise surprise <laughs> so yeah it leaves us in this like position of well how can we yield like a positive body image if we aren't like being helped in kind of increasing our confidence and also when we do experience those extreme bodily sensations so like that feeling of fullness if we have accidentally eaten too much it's that that elicits such an unpleasant experience how can we train ourselves to kind of ground ourselves in that moment and deal with it a bit more um positively rather than kind of for me I get swept into a whirlpool and I think that's the, also the same with if those use exercise as a form of stimming it's kind of okay that's great but if you get yourself into a position where I was where it becomes extremely self-destructive and dangerous mm. it's helping that person re-establish because I don't want to get rid of it I love doing different types of exercise and my treatment was like no you need to stop and I'm like but I don't want to because I know that it would actually have a detrimental effect for my well-being not just obvious for the obvious reasons but genuinely yeah. I I need it because it helps but I need to find a way of still creating that same sort of stimulation but not to the detriment of my physical and emotional well-being yeah. And so I think that's where interoception is such a like an overlooked aspect for treatment in eating disorders and just for body image in general. Like it's always about the external aspects of it. So how we are using social media, improving how we look at ourselves, blah, blah, blah. But I think, um, yeah, it needs to kind of tap, which is still really important. Mm. I still think we need to kind of tap into more about how we are appraising or evaluating our internal experience yeah yeah I think I think you're so right and I think it's really interesting what you were saying about um the exercise side of things um because I think 
I <clears throat> I personally can relate to that as well and that I like the feeling and it makes me feel happy um and a lot of the time you know if I am in a in a in a quite a bad place I'm being anxious or having a really bad body image day going and doing some exercise can be really positive um but equally I think it has a flip side as well in that if I'm in a situation where I am really anxious or having a bad, bad body image day and I don't have access to the type of exercise that I want to do because you know sometimes a walk a walk doesn't cut it then I think that's where the issue is like you were saying you need to find something else that provides that kind of stimulation or that sense of relief for those situations um and I wanted to kind of discuss with you a bit more in terms of kind of treatment for individuals with autism because I think like you've kind of mentioned there there's there's quite a few things that possibly in typical eating disorder treatment we might think you know stop exercising do this do that blah 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 but actually for someone with autism I'm, I'm getting the sense that it would be quite different so I just wondered if you had any ideas about how treatment needs might need to be adapted maybe talking from your personal experience because obviously you don't want to just do like a blanket thing but um yeah how it how it might alter so I think one way to look at autism is the autistic personality so I found this really interesting paper that theorised that of the broader autistic phenotype. So everyone has characteristics that stereotypically depict autism. However, the autistic personality can be almost the, like you can see it as the characteristics or behaviours are more pronounced and therefore warrant a diagnosis for autism. Mm. So we all have our, um, so you often hear, oh, I do that as well. Would that make me autistic? And it's like, yeah, everyone does X, Y, and Z. However, it's, it's a lot more pronounced. And also I think it's really important to say that sometimes the autistic personality it's not inherently pathological. However, it is very much susceptible to being maladaptive. Mm. So not very, um, it can be slightly detrimental in its effect. So to one's kind of psychological well-being, but also their physical well-being. Um, and it's kind of dealing with that. And so I feel like on that note there's so many features to the autistic personalities that uh, both clinical and in research they just automatically think it's a pathology or it's an issue mm -hmm. and so so for example yes or before I had a bad crap body image it's weird up until about the age of say 25 I had, I can hands down say, I had always had positive body image. I had no, I was extremely fortunate throughout my childhood and teenage years that I had no issues. I was this weird exception. Um, and I even used to joke, or it's so gross saying it, but I used to say, I just understand, like I don't have any issues, touch wood, 
um, nothing will change. <laughs> Lol. Um, but did I not then say, but I really, and this really almost haunts me because I used to say, I've got the personality for it though. I'll tell you that kind of like, and people were like, what do you mean by the personality? And I said, well, I'm really rigid, obsessive. Um, I'm very easily freaked out by uh, my stomach. But they were like, what do you mean by your stomach? And I meant like, as in di digestion, because I hated the sensation of it. And I would list all these like characteristics about my personality that you would then inherently think, oh gosh, yeah, she's proper at risk for developing an eating disorder and lo and behold mix in lots of trauma and just um a lot of difficulties in my mid-20s which why like that's literally what your 20s is about it seems um and lo and behold I developed anorexia um but that does not mean like I say I had those characteristics before I had anorexia and I had instead positive body image. So I had bad interoceptive awareness or heightened, very heightened actually interoceptive awareness. I was very cognitive, rigidative, um, obsessive thinking, black and white thinking, um, not very good at seeing the nuance in social language. So if I saw an advert about weight loss, I'd be like, what? Okay, um, take it as it like, really did not see the nuance in anything um which makes me very susceptible but that does not then mean that my autism is like the pathology if that makes sense so in the research i always find like they just really link autism and anorexia to death's door i don't know if that's a phrase which i understand why i really do because like i say those traits are very similar and yes, we are at an increased risk because of it. But I then feel like that then doesn't get taken into account in treatment. Cognitive rigidity, yeah, that can then make you quite susceptible to anorexic uh, behaviours. So in a neurotypical adult or person rather, yeah, maybe it might help a lot, like teaching them a bit more mental flexibility might help reduce their behaviors. However, for me, that ain't gonna go anywhere. And I don't want it to go anywhere because that is my personality. Mm. And it's taken me a long time to accept that. I've experienced a lot of stigma because of it. And so now, and, I'm, and I had tried to get rid of it bloody years, but it's not gonna go anywhere because it's how my brain is wired. So to then tell me to try and change it, get rid of this condition, it's you're, like we experienced, I got discharged because I was too complex, I was too difficult. And they also said that I was non-compliant because my dietitian would try and get me to add certain things to my uh, daily intake but I had a routine to uphold and I like my routine so it wasn't that I didn't wanted to eat more which in the early days maybe perhaps that was the case but I was just um, I like my routine I am one of those people that eats the same meal so like say you have pizza on a Monday fish fingers on a Tuesday literally every week for months on end I am that person and for a lot of people think oh god that sounds awful but for me like I love that 
it gives me a sense of comfort. It makes sure that I eat well as well. So if I didn't have that routine, honestly, I just would not eat. I wouldn't eat. And so by them trying to disrupt that routine as well, it just, it wasn't going, it wasn't going in my favour, but they just wouldn't recognise that. They were then perceiving it as me being difficult and non-compliant and um, upholding or trying to like control that rigidity. And I'm saying to them like, no, I need it for me to be better. Because if we didn't have it, we would not be going in the right direction. It would be a huge detriment. And they just wouldn't really listen to that. And so it all went to pot and I got discharged and I had to deal with this on my own, which has been a challenge, but um, it's going all right, somewhat. (laughs) And yeah, I just feel like all the treatment that is available in the NHS, like I understand why it's based on the neurotypical, but I and I think it should still be based on the neurotypical. I just think because of a lot of the treatments based on like these cognitive behavioral models that rightfully exist, I just argue that we just, so it's like a well-established bicycle wheel that's rolling around and it's doing its job somewhat effectively, not all the time, but it's doing its best. And I don't think we need to reinvent that wheel for the for the neurodivergent person, I just think we simply need to just add a spoke to that wheel just to kind of at least acknowledge and be aware of our experience and not pathologize our experience, but just simply see it as just slightly different and therefore just slightly adapt somewhat. And I don't even think you have to be neurodivergent for them to do that. I think the neurotypical deserves that as well. I just think it needs to be a bit more individualised, but I know that's asking for quite a big task because the whole system's buggered and they're doing their best. I think whether it's somebody that's neurodivergent or neurotypical, I think at the moment we definitely have a sort of tick list of, okay, done that, done that, done that, done that, right off you, you go on your way. And if you don't do one of the steps, then sorry, you're not right. You're not appropriate for this service. Um, But I think even, you know, when you let's take anorexia, for example, you know, you might present with similar characteristics, but the individual is still different. You know, every single individual is going to bring something different to the table. So having the same treatment model, you know, broadly speaking, yes, I I would assume that it could be quite similar, but there needs to be aspects of flexibility, like you said, because, you know, if, you know, tip, tip, normally, you know, if somebody's sticking to a very rigid eating pattern then you would say no you need to increase flexibility you need to be um, more diverse with the foods that you're eating but for you if that's a way of soothing your autism you know some people might say well you know you need to eat more food but actually I don't I I think that that's that would be the wrong approach to it and that would leave you feeling very uncomfortable and you know those mechanisms that you've developed that I think I think that's the difficult thing, isn't it? That you know, looking at it broadly speaking, we'd say that's an eating disorder characteristic, which is something that needs to be treated. Yeah. But actually, if it's an autistic trait, like you said, that's your personality. That's not something that needs to be treated. So I can understand the complexity that they have, but the only way that to sort of overcome that is to educate themselves more and to sort of develop different programs for people so that you know the treatment is appropriate for everybody. 
Yeah, and I think it's really important to note that also Arford is like a worthy thing to consider also mm. to avoid a restrictive food intake disorder. So where one avoids or restricts foods that either they find uh, reasons such as like um, the sensory aspects to it, they find very uh, unpleasant or they're just not interested in them. But a lot of the time it's because um, there's the texture or the smell of it. It's just so um, unpleasant for them that they just can't uh, bring themselves to eat it. And that can manifest to the point where their diet intake really becomes quite detrimental. And weirdly enough, I never had this diagnosis, but when I was a kid, there was so, I had such a restrictive palate. Like I just didn't want to eat so many things. My diet was pretty white. All I wanted to eat all the time was cheesy prawn pasta or just pasta. And yeah, people around me were just like, "What? this isn't healthy, this isn't good. And I understand to a certain degree, yes, it can be. Um, it can manifest to a point where, yeah, it's it's it needs intervention. But at the same time, I, I still feel like we, I just feel like, it, especially in the research that we just keep continuing to kind of look at the autistic personality as something bad yeah. and that needs intervention in itself and it's like no you can't continue viewing it this way and I think because it's ironically enough that feeds the eating disorder because often I speak for myself and probably for a lot of people's the eating disorder does also develop because you're just as a coping strategy for being autistic you just experience so much stigma and discrimination you feel so kind of like people perceive you so negatively for no, like you're just being yourself. You haven't done anything bad or wrong, but yet you're made to feel like you're bad and wrong and deviant. And so you just think, what, what can I possibly do to amend this? What can I do to, I can't change myself. What can I possibly do to change me to be more socially acceptable and for people to leave me alone and yeah for, that for me was also a reason as to why it developed because I just thought I just don't know what else to do what can I do to kind of get rid of this thing and so things like masking so you develop quite a lot of um, disordered value so you can maybe copy or mirror anorexic values to try and just create like a new personality basically to try and uh, camouflage your autism basically and I think in treatment they can just kind of perpetuate that by constantly kind of saying what it is that you're doing is wrong what you what you're acting like is wrong even though weirdly enough you're you're doing your absolute best you're doing all the things that really for you was actually helping you but they're still turning around and saying no you're doing it wrong and you're just saying oh bugger fuck what do I do um and yeah that can then further entrenched like the sense of just a lack of acceptance and you're weird and so forth and and then yeah the irony is it can almost drives it and makes it almost worse so I actually found treatment although I absolutely loved my 
therapist and my dietitian was such a kind person they both were lovely and I really I always think of them almost every day and I always think what does what would my dietitian be saying to me right now and things like that but I still feel like it's not them it's just the system that they're a product of of just not really understanding autism and what it is to have an autistic personality it's just a bit um but I think it's like that for a lot of disabilities in general I think uh it's just a medical training Mm. not necessarily lazy but um yeah I just feel like they're just they miss the point Mm. I don't think it's nuanced enough no it's not no I don't think it's as nuanced as it should be and I can imagine you know how you were saying there that you know you may you might develop an eating disorder to kind of you know try and fit in a bit more be a bit normal because you know you you feel a bit less normal because of the autism and then you go to treatment and they're telling you this is wrong and blah 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 and I can imagine that be quite overwhelming quite confusing in terms of what you know this was my step to be more like everybody else and actually now you're telling me that I'm wrong um which like you said I would imagine would drive it even more because you know you're then using that as a new coping mechanism to manage things and you're being told that's wrong so you just go further into it because you know maybe where I'm at now is not right but if I do it more it could be um so yeah I think I think it needs to be so much more nuanced um but maybe also like I don't know if this is a thing but create is there awareness in the autistic community about the link between eating disorders is is that there I think I'm really biased because I'm like, how do you not know? I'm, I'm really, yeah. really biased. I, and I know that. Um, but I have to kind of think back on like the really early stages of my my journey. I absolutely hate that sound. <laughs> <laughs> but at the beginning of my journey and I was reading these papers and I just all the time, it was these light bulbs. So now I don't. I don't think we're aware and it's absolutely mad to think now so basically throughout this wonderful journey I kept having to basically find myself essentially training my therapist so I would say to her like I read this really interesting paper and um, so I then I put forward the whole like exercise of stimming mm. one and she also she just looked at me we both were just staring at each other like fuck we yeah that's hit the nail on the head there but do we did we then go forward to try and address it in the way that then accords with me no we didn't um it was more no stop doing it stop doing so many burpees I'm like yeah but they make me feel great but I just don't know how to stop (laughs) um um no I don't think I don't want to speak for the whole community but I think often because there's such a lack of awareness on autism in general so all so many of my physical health issues as I've grown up are linked with my autism and no one no GP or any specialist has ever bothered to kind of ask oh you're autistic 
and then kind of maybe look evaluate the link with that because if they did we would have very swiftly found ah yeah that's why um so for example it's a bit vulgar but whatever is that um i think it's something ridiculous like two-thirds of autistic individuals experience functional gastrointestinal disorders so things like uh, that's why kids often experience things like soiling or constipation it's not a and often weirdly enough i remember being in special school it was almost pinpointed as like a behavioral thing as if they were doing it on purpose which i find it absolutely mad um so if they soiled themselves that was them being like antisocial and just kind of kicking up a fuss no it's a re- it's an outcome of extreme anxiety and distress and for me yeah I have always experienced really terrible gastrointestinal problems and they run in the family and yeah the GP just never really kind of made establish that link so I just think it's not just about eating disorders I just think it's about physical health in general and mental health so mental health is so rife amongst autistic people again a huge proportion of autistic individuals will at some point experience suicidal ideation and there and uh, uh, to actually kind of the suicide rates is not favorable at all and it seems to just be overlooked it just it's, it just seems to be like oh yeah well that's a shame but they are quite quirky so they're troubled to begin with I suppose and, and then it's just swept under the carpet and yeah I just think with body and eating related issues amongst autistic people I just think our understanding of things like positive body image and eating disorders is just based on the neurotypical so then how are we supposed to raise that awareness amongst autistic people when we don't know how it is like mm. what it is for these people if yeah. that makes sense yeah so no of course we're not going to be that aware because none of y'all were that aware to begin with so um which is why I'd like to come in and basically establish that and say okay well I'd like to look at how we experience it so we can then go okay either yeah that is how I experienced it and so we can tell people our version of it so they can finally recognize it and promote it that way amongst us or even amongst neurotypical as well or um, other neurodivergent people Um, and if they are experiencing difficulties then we can promote it in a way that's a lot more adapted to this population so rather than yeah, I think we can still promote intuitive eating. That would be fantastic. It's it's effective. I just think we need to readapt it or translate it in a way that's a bit that accords to this population a bit more. But research needs to be done to do this. And mm. um, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're making fantastic headway. So hopefully you can be the head of it all and you know changing that game because it sounds like it's so needed. Um, I have some questions from the listeners for you because um, we are getting around to the hour. 
Um, so the first question was, um, I thought it was a really interesting question, actually. It was from um, somebody that is autistic and she was asking um, that a lot of people that have anorexia talk about being cold. And yeah. she said that she's never experienced that and wondered if the her autism was impacting her kind of, I guess like we were talking about earlier, like being able to sense your, your temperature yeah which is that's a, a really good question because um that was one of my main motivating factors to get better because I was so cold mm. um I often was blue not I I don't want to be triggering but um yeah I was very very cold but I also get very very hot like I just do not tolerate any kind of slight extremes and unfortunately yeah I did experience a cold and I used that as a huge motivating factor to get better because I just couldn't function with the sensory aspects to it I just couldn't bear it because I had to then wear more clothes to feel more warm. And so that then comes with more restrictive kind of feeling of clothing. So um, wearing thermal tops or uh, leggings, they're very like tight. And I thought, oh, they, I just want to get them off of me because I normally wear quite baggy clothes because that's just how I like the sensation on my skin. And so I think I'm more on the extreme scale and that I really felt it. I really feel my body temperature. Um, I can't speak like objectively for her experience, but by no means would I assume, yeah, very much potentially she may have, that may be a consequence of her autism, just like with pain. So, so many autistic people are at risk like I said earlier at risk for really severely injuring themselves because they don't perceive pain that accurately so they might break their arm and they'll just carry on not giving two hoots um and I think the same can go with things like heartbeat and your temperature so I think yeah it's very it can be easily assumed that perhaps she's experiencing that dulled sort of sensation and I think then it would be very, really, that's another way of how uh, healthcare professionals should be really mindful of the autistic experience and that they might not be kind of experiencing the detriments of their physical health as accurately. So they might not be able to report those symptoms to their GP. So they need to be a bit more kind of a bit of more of a red alert or I guess yeah more alert to kind of monitoring those symptoms amongst those people so making sure that their body temperature and their heartbeat or heart rate rather is not like being monitored because we can't just simply always rely on these people to accurately report these things like they have this a huge assumption like oh they're not reporting it because they just want to try and cheat the system because of like a state of denial or things like that but no maybe the person just genuinely isn't aware yeah. so it's not just jumping to those conclusions so yeah just kind of um being a lot more rigorous in how they monitor people so for that individual she 
might actually be really quite unwell and experiencing really low body temperature but she's yeah like I said not able to really report it accurately enough yeah I think that's really helpful um and yeah I think it's interesting I think that's probably the thing isn't it in that it could have an impact but actually like we were saying earlier everybody's individual so you may have somebody like yourself that felt the extremities of it and then other individuals you know might not be aware of it at all and there could be things that maybe you don't have awareness of that she has like very intense feelings of so um I think that's really interesting but definitely something for you know like say medical professionals to be aware of um and then the other question was somebody asking for your advice on how to curate how to curate positive body image. <laughs> your face. <laughs> the million dollar question. But there's so many avenues, Hannah. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> but also, it depends on this is the frustrating thing I automatically am like are they neurotypical or neurodivergent because I think potentially it could be so different and we don't know enough about neurodivergent um so yeah I would list all these um kind of tested interventions and I'd be like well they work nothing for me so um but I'll list some anyway um what works for you for me Mm. oh I'm not I'm not a good example because I don't consider myself ironically I don't consider myself as someone who has gotten back to a place of having positive body image unfortunately whether they'll ever come beats me I don't know but I think it's there's so many different activities I guess for me personally in my in my journey I think the best thing, it sounds really kind of cliche, it is a cliche, but the research says supports my experience and that's yoga. So um, I tried to find exercise that wasn't physically harmful for me. And also got me to stim in a way that was effective, but again not too detrimental and also weirdly just kind of gets me into a frame of mind of how I evaluate my both my kind of external and internal experience of my body so I think one of the biggest things that yoga has taught me is functionality appreciation is a huge aspect for positive body image Mm -hmm. so you can so with body appreciation that's just appreciating your body unconditionally well no not unconditionally but having respect and love for your body and that isn't always it can be up and down and you accept it for how it is you just accept how it is that you're experiencing that so yoga really does that for me so some days I will or some moments almost like it can change within the hour Mm. in that yeah I can appreciate it I, I might feel better I might have a really tough moment and feel very physically uncomfortable, but that will pass. And with yoga, I feel like it really seems to encourage that thinking. So you might put yourself into a, in a pose that's really uncomfortable and you kind of push through it, but with intuitively and to your best ability 
and it will end and you just have to tolerate it Mm. but when I say tolerate it I mean it more kind of more spiritually not in a harmful way yeah which I'm always mindful in articulating that (laughs) and it's just appreciating more of your functionality so I could think oh there's so many things wrong with me like this my head is wrong but at least my leg is damn strong for a I don't know what's it called a tree pose mm-hmm. um, I held that tree pose fantastic for a whole minute go me that was lovely oh I didn't hold it I lost my balance that's okay we carry on mm-hmm. and I think that's really helped with things like my perfectionistic tendencies and my rigidity mm-hmm. in that to, that's helped me somewhat be a bit more flexible in my thinking and then that's really translated into my interest in nature because didn't we all throughout lockdown kind of go out in nature a lot more and from where I'm from we've got the sea we've got woodlands and things like that and I think that um whilst we don't know quite yet that's my job at the moment is kind of it's assumed that it has like a certain or familiar experience than it does with yoga so I'm hoping to maybe see if it that's confirmed but for me at least nature seems to have that sort of similar experience for me in that it gets me a bit more mindful um, and appreciates the functionality so I don't think I've never really been one to actually really focus on my external appearance or at least how my body looks other than when it physically feels uncomfortable Mm -hmm. other than that I don't really give two hoots Um, and with walking yeah it kind of just helps me appreciate the functionality aspects a lot more and I think for other people it will be the same whether it's a, quite a solitude activity or with other people with friends or family it just kind of um it has quite an extra existential aspects to it so it can make you quite small doesn't it mm. if you're out in on top of a massive hill or mountain it can make you so small and I think that's actually quite important and it's I've been finding that people then can translate to how they perceive their difficulties or their issues, particularly regarding their body image, not to dismiss their experience, but to say it in the grand scheme of things, they, it does not matter. Mm. So I think that's one thing that I can also kind of say based on what I've been finding is when people go out and utilize nature in that way, it can have, quite a really positive effect on how they perceive not just their body image issues but also just an issues more generally you just reminded me um my one of my friends um and he never I don't think he says it in in the respect that you were talking about with sort of like your body image but when I'm having a bad day in terms of body image I always say to myself you're just a monkey on a rock and then I think it's like what you said, if you're standing at the top of a hill or something, you recognise, you know, you are just a pinpoint in nature, which I think is, is why it's so nice. And also, you know, going out into nature and recognising the beauty of it and the flowers and stuff like that. That was one thing in my recovery that I found so poignant was I would, you know, go for a walk when I was ill and I was just so focused on walking and didn't care what was around me. If anyone got in my way, you know, just get out. But then actually during recovery, I started to notice, you know, the flowers that were coming up and and the trees that didn't have leaves a few weeks ago and stuff like that. And actually 
that recognition I, I guess is the same thing what you're saying about the mindfulness and actually you know wandering along and a thought might pop into my head that's uncomfortable but recognizing the flowers distracted me and then I would kind of try to refocus so I think you know kind of saying to yourself you're just a monkey on a rock that to me that to me really helps um yeah yeah but thank you so much that has been brilliant to chat to you um I think that you know there's so many things there that people will be able to take away so thank you so much for all of your knowledge and I hope that writing the dissertation goes well you have to keep us updated I will thank you sorry I've chatted a lot but no it's been brilliant it's been been so much um so much to learn from you and I think it's it's one of those things you know I think when you work in eating disorders you come across terms like alexithymia and interoception but actually they're not things that you're taught in treatment and one thing I personally and you know it's not gonna be the same for everybody but one thing I found really useful is actually and I think you kind of mentioned it earlier when you were talking about stimming but is looking at the research and actually, you know, saying, you know, reading something, but like, yeah, that relates to me. And, you know, that makes sense as to why I'm doing that. And to me, that was when recovery really kickstarted. Um, and that was only a couple of years ago when I sat with my therapist who I'm still with now, and she showed me some papers on body dysmorphia. And I was like, well, yeah, that, that's exactly what I've got. And that makes sense. But nobody had ever kind of laid down the research before. They'd just been like, this is what you need to do. And I was just at the like, well, you're telling me that's what I need to do, but I need to know the reasons why I need to do that. So listening yeah. to this podcast, I think will be really useful for people to understand things more. Yeah. I just think research needs to be a bit more accessible though. Yeah. Because we're, at a, I think we're an exception that we have this mm -hmm. we have the access to the research yeah. whereas the general person doesn't and yet it serves such a crucial tool because they're looking at other people who are voicing their experiencing quite articulately and sometimes we're not able to mm -hmm. um it, I, i'm not always able to articulate what is it i'm experiencing i literally ex voiced that i didn't know that i was experiencing that until i read it so i think yeah I just want to find a way of helping the public to be a bit more at arm's reach at least to research at the moment it's not or at least um getting it to healthcare professionals so that they can maybe read it and then therefore kind of pick up on these sort of traits amongst people who they're talking with to at least kind of detect it and say oh actually maybe you're experiencing this but um yeah we've asked a lot in this one hour <laughs> we've covered a lot brilliant yeah so thank you very much um yeah it's been lovely to chat to you thank you if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.